please turn with me to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2, and we will be going through verses 1 to 13. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled with new wine. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we pray this morning that by your Spirit that you would help us to understand your word. By your Spirit that you would would comfort, that you would strengthen, that you would encourage, that you would convict. Help us and may our time, the remainder of our time, continue to be honoring and glorifying to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The English poet and hymnist Samuel J. Stone had at one time written, The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by the water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his holy bride. With his own blood he bought her, and for her life, he died. Charles Spurgeon had once said that the church is the dearest place on earth. And for the next several weeks, my desire and intent is to help you to understand what exactly makes the church the dearest place on earth. Because I agree, it is the dearest place on earth. And so we'll be going into chapter 2. In fact, we'll be spending a couple more weeks on just this passage alone, chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. So one sermon today and two more on this passage because that's how dense I think it is and to help us to understand just how significant this event is in the life of the church. Having walked through chapter 1 and we see the disciples gathered with Jesus and Jesus tells them once more of the promise that's coming to them from the Father. They witness the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. They gathered together, they replaced Judas, who had left to his own way, and replaced him with another apostle. And they're gathering together, praying, devoted in one mind, 
for several days waiting for the promise of the Father. And here in chapter 2, we finally see the promise that Jesus had told them. So as we get into this passage, I want to think of the passage much more broadly. Think about it in, in, in the context of redemption history. And so with that, before we actually get into what's going on in the passage, I want to take a step back and take us back to the Old Testament to point us to another significant event in salvation history, which leads to a, a, a two particular or important celebrations in the life of God's people in the Old Testament. So firstly, from Passover to Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, the text says. So here we have the mention of Pentecost, and this is an important event in the life of God's people. But before that, as I said, I want to take a step back and consider another important event in the life of or in the context of salvation history, and that is the Exodus. And many are familiar with the story of the Exodus. Some of you have read through the book of Exodus. The people of God have been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, 400 years of sweat, back-breaking work, in agony and blood and tears, many years of calling out with no answer, many years of praying with no answer from heaven, many years of deferred hope, until finally God calls Moses to be the one that he uses to deliver God's people from slavery in Egypt. And what we see through the book, in the book of Exodus is all of these signs and wonders. God performs all these miraculous things in order to compel Pharaoh to let God's people go. But more than that, it's also to display his power. Egypt becomes the showcase of God's power to the world. And these signs would have been unmistakable to Egyptians. They would, have been, they would have seen and interpreted the signs of the times and have said, there certainly is no God greater than this God. That their gods pale in comparison to the great might and power of the Lord, the God of the Hebrews. And all these signs and wonders leads ultimately to the last sign of God and from which we get the Passover celebration. In Exodus 12, it says in verse 14, This day, the Passover day, shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statue forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses, for if anyone eats what is leavened, from the first day until the seventh day that person shall be cut off from Israel. So that we have this last sign from which we have the Passover celebration in the life of God's people. It's coming from this last sign, the sign that says that God will slay the firstborn of every child in Egypt, of every household, but he also provides a protection. If you want to protect yourself from the angel of death, then you will take a lamb, sacrifice it, and take its blood and paint it upon the doorposts of your house. Then when the angel of God, or the angel of death, passes through the land, he will pass over your house, and death shall not visit you or your household. And then God would command his people to remember this day, to commemorate this day, to memorialize this day. 
And while certainly it is a day filled with sorrow and tragedy, at the same time, it is a joy or a, 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 a time of the year to celebrate. The Passover would have been sort of their fourth of July celebration as they would then go on to celebrate the, the, the deliverance that God has powerfully provided for his people. It would become sort of their annual Christmas celebration as they rejoice in what God has done in providing for them the salvation that they were desperate for. And then for the Passover, we come to another celebration, and that is the Feast of Weeks. Leviticus 23 speaks of this particular celebration. It says, You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. You shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour, and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits of the Lord. Now, something that, stands, that makes this particular celebration stand out from the other celebrations that God's people were commanded to celebrate each year is that this one had to fall on a specific date. And that is, this needs to be 50 days after the Passover. Or seven Sabbaths. And the point of this particular celebration is to bring the grain to bring the first fruits of your grain, of your wheat harvest, unto the Lord. And so it's intended to be celebrated, to be attended by all the male Jews, no matter where they lived, they were all required to come to celebrate the Passover and to celebrate, specifically, the Feast of Weeks, taking the wheat of their harvest, taking the first fruits. So right, instead of taking the wheat... The thing that you have your source of income from, you are, before paying yourself, you're taking and separating some out and saying, this is dedicated to the Lord. This belongs to the Lord. And this is intended to be an expression of gratitude. To say, thank you to the Lord for his providing, for his taking care of you, for his sustaining you and your family. So from the Passover to Pentecost, or to the Feast of Weeks, fast forward now to the Gospels. And Jesus also would celebrate the Passover with his disciples. He would also celebrate the day of preparation for the Passover. Matthew 26, verse 17, it tells us that on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So the day of preparation is exactly like it sounds. The day of preparation would have been the day that you would prepare all your meals for the next day for the Passover, setting your house in order, in order to prepare oneself to commemorate this important event in salvation history. And this will be followed by the week of unleavened bread as part of the celebration. So the day of preparation, the Passover, the seven days afterwards, for the Jew in Jewish tradition, it would have been considered as one celebration, and that is the Passover celebration. Now consider also 
that as Jesus is preparing for the Passover and to take this meal with his disciples, that Jesus is anointed by Mary as she opens the alabaster jar of perfume and he anoints the head of Jesus and with her tears she washes his feet and with her hair she dries his feet and Jesus does not prevent her from doing so and says, let her do it because she is preparing me for burial. She's doing a good thing. Then afterwards Jesus arrested, tried, yet never convicted, and crucified, crucified on the day of Passover. And we see, hopefully, the connections between what's happening in the Exodus and what's happening in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. In Exodus, in Egypt, God was performing all these signs and wonders to display to the world that this is God, that only God can do this. Only God is able to do all of these things ultimately leading to the deliverance of God's people from the slavery of Egypt. And then we see the same thing happening. Only this time, God is not using an intermediary like Moses to be the one that he uses to deliver God's people. Instead, it is God's own very Son who comes from heaven down into the earth. And he also performs signs and wonders. Right? The lame are able to walk. The, sight, the blind receive their sight, the deaf are able to hear, those who are oppressed by demons are delivered, the dead are raised back to life, and all this is intended to show the world that he is, in fact, the Son of God. But there's a significant difference between those two different events, that while in the first event, while God had said that the only way to protect the firstborn in your household is to take blood and paint it on your doorpost. What we see is that when Jesus, when his body is prepared for burial and for the coming judgment that God will pronounce over the world is that there is no blood that is protecting the life of God's Son because Jesus himself is the sacrificial lamb whose blood will go on to mark all those that he has come to save, those who believe in him. So Jesus doesn't have the protection. Jesus doesn't have the safety because he himself is the, the sacrificial lamb. As, as John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He did not come into the world to protect himself, but he came into the world to be, be the lamb whose blood protects all of his people from the judgment and the wrath of God. Many of you are surely familiar with that hymn that says there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there have I, though vile as he, washed all my sins away. We are saved. We are protected because Jesus Christ shed his own blood to save us from the judgment and wrath of God. 
And dear friend, if you're here and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, you might think it's strange to hear of all these things, of blood and sacrifice and death of lambs. It might sound gross and grotesque to you. The Christian religion is many things. There's a religion of praying. There's a religion of singing. And I will also unashamedly admit that the Christian religion is a religion drenched in blood. For the Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That is the only way to be forgiven of one's sins, and that is the great need of the hour, the great need of your life. You might say that you need more money, that you might need to be healed from a terminal illness or sickness. You might need deliverance from, from alcoholism or being addicted to a particular drug. And I'm not saying those things are not important. They are important, but the greatest need that you have is to have your sins forgiven. And if Christ Jesus' blood is not applied to you, then that means that your own blood must be shed eternally. Believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be saved, be delivered by believing in his name, believing in what he has done for you. So that you may be set free and forgiven of your sins and live eternally with God and Christ. Again, it says that the day of Pentecost had arrived. And this is significant. For Jesus was crucified on the day of Passover. Jesus rose again from the dead, remained with his disciples for 40 days, appearing to them. And then he was ascended on high. And then 10 days later came Pentecost, the celebration of the Feast of Weeks. And then this way, which would have required, as I said earlier, all Jews from different parts of the world to come together to Jerusalem to bring the first fruits of their offering to the Lord. So in this way, we see that God has orchestrated these events that the giving of the Spirit will come at the exact time when Jerusalem would be swelling with people who spoke different languages. And in this way, to display His power once again, And he would give these early Christians the power by the Spirit to speak in these languages that they never knew before. And in this way, we see that from the very beginning that the church was always in the mind of God. From the Exodus, to the Passover, to the Feast of Weeks, and now to this very moment in the life of the church. And in this way, we see that the very beginning of the church age had begun on this first day of the Feast of Weeks. But we also see that it is during this celebration when people were expected to bring the first fruits to the Lord that God also shows up and He would be generous unto the world, which leads to secondly to the filling of the Spirit. It's not always easy to give away some of what you have worked so hard to earn. I mean, imagine yourself as a farmer where your occupation is to work the ground day in and day out. You are dependent on the fruit of the ground. You're working each day. Not only that, but you're depending on things you have no control over. You're depending on good weather. You're depending on good rain. 
and you're depending on, the, on rain stopping at times so that your crops are not drowning in water. And then imagine when it's almost, when it's just moments from harvest, the time has come to reap the, the, the fruits of all your hard-earned work. And then suddenly, and without notice, there comes a great and terrible storm and gets, it, it just decimates your entire crop. Right? And then you're left with nothing. Like the financial crisis that, of 2008, or name it, when people have lost their hard-earned harvest of their home or their hard-earned harvest of their life savings, gone in a moment. And so because you cannot predict what will happen, because you know that there are things that you have no control over, that naturally leads to a response, which is to hang on to everything that you can. Hold on to those things. Because you want to be prepared for the unexpected. But that is why God's people in the Old Testament were commanded to celebrate the Feast of Weeks as a way of continuing to trust in the Lord, to trust that He will continue to provide, to trust that He will take care of His people. And it's a feast marked by thanksgiving and appreciation for God's gracious provision. So many Jews would be coming from different parts of the world into Jerusalem to bring the first fruit of their harvest to worship the Lord. And in Acts chapter 2, and as we continue to work through the chapter over the course of weeks, we'll see that the Lord also has come to the feast. But the Lord didn't come to the feast to present to himself sort of a his first fruits, but he comes first and foremost to bring his very best for all those who believe in him. And in so doing, we will go on to see that in this way, God received more than just the first fruit of this wheat that people have brought into the celebration. What he receives, what God receives, is the first fruits of salvation accomplished through Christ in the thousands of people that will come to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. Beginning with these early believers who are gathering together and receive the Spirit and the preaching of the gospel through Peter and the thousands that come to believe in that gospel. In verse 2, it says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And in this way, we see the presence of God and we see it in two different ways. We see the control of God and we see the presence of God. You know, I remember from an earlier sermon in the book of Acts that fire, oftentimes in the Old Testament, represents the presence of God. And we see that these, these tongues of fire appeared and rested on each one of these believers, showing us that God's presence is here. It says that there are tongues of fire, not to be taken literally, 
but rather what I think Luke is saying is that like fire tends to, to spread and consume everything it touches, what was happening in this room was a phenomenon that was touching every person in that room. There wasn't a single person that didn't experience this phenomenon of the Spirit where they are filled with the Spirit and begin to speak in tongues. And by the way, speaking about this visible sign gift of tongues, which is something that 1 Corinthians speaks a lot about, about, speaks a lot about, it is a spiritual phenomenon that we see throughout the book of Acts. But I do want to make clear that this gift of tongue is not, does not necessarily mean that one is a believer, neither is it required for salvation. In fact, there are plenty of examples in the book of Acts where people receive Christ but don't necessarily speak in tongues. So the fire of God, which symbolizes or represents the presence of God, is there in the room. There's also the control of God, which we see through the mighty rushing wind that there is in the room. And in the Old Testament, oftentimes we see that the wind is something that's under the control of God. For example, in the story of Jonah, at the very end of that story, we see it in Genesis 8. One, for example, where it says God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. And then turning to Jesus, we also see the presence and the power of God in him as he controls the, the seas and the wind as well. When the disciples were off to sea and their, their ship had been tossed to and fro by the storm, and Jesus calms the storm. And in Matthew eight twenty seven, the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. And then in John 3, 8, Jesus likens the spirits to the wind. He says there, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is not saying that every time you feel the wind outside, it means the Spirit is there. But he likens the wind to the Spirit. and says that the Spirit goes where he wishes, and gives or brings or causes to be born again those that he dwells in. This tells us that this mighty rushing wind filled the room, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And interestingly, two different words in the original language are used here for the word filled. In the first instance, when it tells us about the mighty rushing wind and it's, being, and it's filling the entire room, it's like, when Mary opens the alabaster jar and the, and the perfume fills the house, is that kind of feeling? Or when you wake up on a Saturday morning to the glorious smell of bacon, right? You know, like it fills the entire house. It's not a, in a single room where you don't smell the smell of bacon. And so, in the same way, this, this is how I think it's intended to be interpreted here. This, Spirit is filling the entire room, but then it's a different feeling when it fills, when the Spirit fills those who are in the room. While the Spirit filled the room broadly, the Spirit then seems to settle personally in each person that is in that room. Like you might say a person might be filled with anger, while you're saying that this person is consumed by anger or driven by anger, his demeanor, his character is one of anger. So in the same way, the Spirit fills these early believers 
They're consumed with the Spirit. They're filled with the Spirit. And in this way, we see the beginning of the church age. And it begins with Spirit-filled believers. And as Spirit-filled believers, as we continue through the book of Acts, we see that these Spirit-filled believers will go on to do many things, just as we today are called to do many things as Spirit-filled believers. Most importantly, as Spirit-filled believers, we are called to offer up our lives daily. Again, Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, which in the Greek actually comes from the, the word meaning 50. They're here bringing the first fruits, expressing gratitude. And what is their motivation? Their motivation is God has been gracious. God has provided for me and my family. Therefore, I will give unto the Lord to express my gratitude unto Him. For us today, what it, does it mean for us to express this gratitude, what motivates our generosity? It is that we have been given much, and much more than we could ever pay God in return. When we consider that God has given unto us His own Son, when we consider that Christ has given His very life for us, when we consider that Jesus also gives to us His most prized possession, and that is His Spirit, And if Jesus gives unto us his very best, that is his own life, how can we not in turn also give him our very best, and that is our lives? Romans 12.1 tells us, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. And here Paul says, He tells us what should motivate the Spirit-filled believer to present their body daily as an act of worship to the Lord. It's the mercies of God. The mercies of God as we see in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this is every day choosing to live for Christ as a perpetual expression of gratitude for how we have been so richly blessed in Christ which then begs the question, what might you be holding on to with an iron grip? Is there something that the Lord is calling you to give up that you are being very protective of, like a she-bear might protect her threatened cubs? Is it personal dreams and ambitions? Christ Jesus wants you to hang on to your dreams and plans loosely. He wants you to let go and let him steer the ship of your life. It might not need, it might not lead to a direction that lends itself to being more lucrative or prosperous or more honor and prestige or whatever it is that you're after. But it will certainly lead to something better. If anything, it will lead to a place where you will know God better than you do right now. What are you hanging on to? Is it sin? Christ Jesus wants you to be free of your sin. Christ Jesus does not want you to hang on to that which he so dearly paid for. He wants you to see him as the well of your life from which you can draw from, and his well will never run dry. 
Seek your joy and pleasure and satisfaction in Christ. Are you hanging on to grudge or unforgiveness? Unforgiveness and holding on to a grudge is like salt water to metal. It will corrode the metal of your faith. Jesus wants you to be free of that burden. He wants to remove it of your life if you will just entrust him with that anger and unforgiveness and freely forgive others. If Christ has freely forgiven you of your sin, how can you not in turn freely forgive those who might have offended you? Is God calling you to give up control? Are you anxious about the future? Are you struggling to hang on to your wealth more loosely for fear of the times? Are you finding it hard to respond graciously when things don't go the way you expect? Do you wrestle with anger and frustration when something intrudes upon your neat and organized life and causes a bit of turmoil? Christ Jesus wants you to stop fighting for control. And while certainly it is hard to entrust your life to another person, Jesus is not just another person. Jesus is the Lamb of God. Jesus is your Savior. Jesus is the one who intercedes for you for the throne of grace. And while you and I may not be able to understand why some things happen and why some things don't, you can always trust his heart. He knows how to deal gently with his people. If you will loosen your control and allow some intrusion of some holy spontaneity in your life, you could see great things of God. And in this way, as the believer daily lives for God, gives her life to God, we see that for the believer, even though we're not called today to celebrate the Feast of Weeks, this, the celebration of Pentecost, Pentecost is every day for the believer because every day they're presenting their lives to the Lord as an expression of gratitude for what they have graciously received through the blood of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the church age is marked by the filling of the Spirit. Third and lastly, this takes us to the plentiful harvest. What began as a celebration for God's continued provision and responding in gratitude by bringing the first fruit of one's harvest, as it turns out, it becomes a harvest of salvation, of great salvation. And Jesus spoke before about this harvest. In Matthew 9, it tells us in Matthew 9.35 that Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Three quick things to, to note in this passage. The first, note the heart of Christ. It says that he goes from village to village, teaching in synagogues, healing in every disease, and he sees the crowds, he sees the people who are following him, and it says that he had compassion. He had compassion. 
on all these people. There you see the great heart of Christ for sinners. And secondly, you see also the reason for his compassion. It says that they had no shepherds. It's not the religious teachers who we considered that they were blind guides. They had compassion because they had no leadership. They had no one to lead them to the path of righteousness, no one to teach them the things concerning the kingdom of God. They had no one to shepherd their souls. And third, most significantly, as it relates to the sermon, the other thing to note is the assurance. Assurance of what? The assurance that there is more out there to be harvested. The assurance is that there is a harvest. So the church is to experience any success in its proclamation of the gospel, going into all the world, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching others to obey the commands of the Lord. And if the church is to experience any success, it's because there is a harvest that the Lord has provided. So the problem is not that there isn't a harvest. The problem is that there are not enough laborers. It's not enough laborers. The Lord has already provided the harvest. What's needed is more workers into the field. And so Jesus says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. There's a harvest here in chapter 2. There's a harvest because we later on see that 3,000 souls are added to the kingdom of God. And the assurance is that the harvest has not gone dry or has died out. The harvest is still there. What's needed is more laborers. And so we must pray earnestly for more laborers. And that's our encouragement for us to pray earnestly for more laborers. But I will tell you that it is a dangerous prayer to pray. Because if you're praying earnestly for more laborers, it might mean that the Lord might be calling some of you to labor in a place that you did not expect. And the question is, are you willing to go if he calls? For some of you, the Lord may be calling you or compel you to labor, perhaps in a different town than where you live, perhaps in a different state, perhaps even in a different country. The question is, are you willing to go if the Lord calls? For some of you, the Lord's calling you perhaps to labor in a place that is close to you. Perhaps it's in your neighborhood, perhaps it's in the workplace. If you're praying for more labors, be prepared to be called to go wherever the Lord is calling you to go. And to also trust that the Lord will provide the words that you need. We're not called to lay out every step, to plan every step, to plan every conversation. We're just simply called to be faithful and just go. And the Lord provides everything else that we need along the way. So we must pray, pray that the Lord would send out more laborers, pray for our own hearts that we might be willing to be sent and labor in the harvest, wherever that harvest might be in our lives. 
In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says that Christ gifted to the church certain persons or certain offices to the church. He says the apostles, which is not an office that is still alive today. He says also the prophets, which I don't necessarily always think it means that somebody who tells the future. He also says that Christ has also gifted the church shepherds and teachers. And he also says that Christ has gifted to the church evangelists. I don't see anywhere in the New Testament that God has stopped gifting this gift to the church. And so praying more earnestly for laborers might also mean that the Lord might be calling some of you with that gift of evangelism. And I'll tell you, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't have that gift of evangelism. And it's not an excuse for me to not evangelize. No one has the excuse to not evangelize just because they don't have the gift of evangelism. But there are some that the Lord gifts with this gift of evangelism. And those individuals are essential in the life of the church because these are the ones who help and encourage the church to engage in evangelism. And so as you're praying for more laborers into the mission field, pray that God would even call some in our church with that gift of evangelism. So pray earnestly. And if we pray earnestly, we must also be willing to be used by God to labor in His harvest, to proclaim the gospel of salvation to the lost. The church is indeed the dearest place on earth. And one of the reasons we see is because the church has Christ's most prized possession, and that is His Spirit. The Spirit is what beautifies the church and makes it the dearest place on earth. So let us pray. Let us pray that the Lord, by His Spirit, would continue to work in and through us, that the Lord, through His Spirit, would gift some with this gift of evangelism, that the Lord would use us, or even work in our hearts, and give us courage and boldness and the words to share the gospel with others, and that the church might be equipped with all that she needs for life and godliness, continuing to be beautified by Christ's precious Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you and, Lord, we pray for more laborers, to go into the harvest. Lord, and it certainly can be overwhelming and intimidating. Lord, but our challenges are not unique to us. The challenges we face today are the same challenges that even the apostles had faced, that the early Christians had faced, that all believers have faced throughout the church age. But as we read your word, as we even consider extra-biblical literature and read about the church age and those who have come before, 
Lord, let us be encouraged that the same Spirit who gave birth to the church is the same Spirit who abides with us today, empowering and encouraging God's people to be laborers in the harvest. Lord, help us to pray. Help us to pray firstly for our own hearts that we might be desirous of seeing a great harvest and seeing many people reaped to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us pray for our own hearts, Lord, that we might be willing to be used by you to share the gospel with others. Let us desire, Lord, help us to desire for you to be magnified and glorified through the proclamation of the gospel and sinners coming to believe in that glorious gospel. Lord, we pray that you would give this gift of evangelism to some. Lord, let us also even be willing to be gifted with that gift. Lord, we pray for a great harvest. We pray for a great salvation. Let us see your salvation with our own eyes. And let us pray earnestly for these things. Help us by your Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.